Good morning, everyone. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll read Scripture. Father, thanks for this uh, Lord's Day, and it's so great to be here. We want to pray for just our whole community of our College Park family, some who have to stay home today and some who need to stay home for the sake of their kids. And uh, it's hard at times. And we, we pray that you would give us endurance through the season, help us to consider others more important than ourselves. And um, we just pray that um, you would uh, eradicate this outbreak in our community and uh, bring it to an end quickly. And we also just want to pray today that we'd not miss what you have for us in 1 Timothy 3.16. It's a great text with some important truths. And so we want to receive it today in the midst of all that we're doing, with joy, gladness, and with attentiveness. So we pray that you'd be our teacher today, Jesus, by your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name, in your name. Amen. Uh, Would you do this with me? The text we're going to read today is a bit of a creed or a hymn, and I'd like us to read it together as our confession. So would you read it along with me, please? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Hmm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So throughout church history, there have been a variety of moments when important summaries of what the church believed need to be written. So, for instance, there are moments in church history when the church needed a confession of faith, and so they wrote a confession, a longer summary of church doctrine. At other times, concerned that people weren't learning doctrine, catechisms were written, which were question-and-answer formats to help particularly children learn the content of faith. In other cases, there were creeds that were written. These are crystallized summaries of important doctrinal truths, and usually creeds are developed because of some sort of crisis. The church is dealing with some sort of error, some teaching that they need to keep out of the church, and so therefore they they write a creed in order to identify what the church really believes. You probably know some creeds. For instance, the Apostles' Creed, probably the most familiar one. Now, that was written because the church was expanding and it needed to crystallize what it really believed. And so that singular summary became the essence of what the Christian church is all about. The Nicene Creed, one that you might not be familiar with, was written in response to the teaching of Arius, who was purporting that Jesus wasn't fully God and that there were not three members of the Trinity who were co-equal in their essence and person. And so the Nicene Creed was written to address this error. And then there's another creed called the Athanasian Creed, named after a man named Athanasius, who argued strongly that it wasn't just that Jesus was of similar substance to the Father, but he was of the same substance. And the argument solely was, is it same or similar? Or in the Greek, it's homoi or homo. So same or similar substance was the issue of the debate. And so the Athanasius Creed came out to really refute this error of the the teaching of Arius. All that to say that when crisis or controversy hits, often the church has to develop creeds. And these are these crystallized essence of teachings of the church that are born out of the fire of controversy that really define what the church is all about and serve, for that matter, as helpful guides in the future. Now, we're in 1 Timothy 3.16 today, and what you have in front of you, what we just read, is either some sort of hymn or some kind of early creed. It's a, it's a crystallization of important biblical truths, and it's meant to be memorable. It's meant to be something that you could recite or somehow get into your brain and then pull out at another point in time. And it's meant to be a bit protective of the church. 
Now remember that this text, 3.16, comes right after 3.15, which was the summary of really the entire book of 1 Timothy. And for those who you who not joined us before, the, the summary of 1 Timothy is found in these words in verse 15. Why did he write Timothy? He wrote it because that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. In other words, the reason First Timothy was written was to help this young pastor know how to be able to guard the truth that leads to life. Then right after that summary statement as to what this book is all about, Paul then talks about this crystallized aspect of truth. In other words, what is the, the, if the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth, then what is the truth that the church is to be a pillar and buttress of? And what the answer to that question is what we have today in this creed, this summary of what the truth is. And so you could think of this text as a doctrinally loaded hymn or a piece of poetry that is meant to take a truth and then make it sing, make it memorable. I mean, in the English language, when we combine words that either rhyme or have a particular meter to them or a verse, if you will, it helps you to remember it, correct? It helps you to maybe dial into a truth at a, at a different level. For instance, I've used this before, that John Bunyan, when describing the difference between the law and the gospel, he said this, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Greater news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Now, that's a really fun and easy and memorable way to talk about the difference between the law and the gospel. It just, it sings, it, it's, it has a melody to it, just in the way in the which the words are formed. Or think, for instance, of John Piper and how he has described the essence of suffering, and that suffering can actually be a gift from God. He says this, He is no fool who is much in, or much enticed, who loses everything but Christ. And it won't be long until the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. That's one thing to say suffering is a gift and God will make it right. But when you say it becomes the kiss of God, it takes a whole other meaning onto it. And that's what happens in this text. Paul is giving us a summary of what the gospel is. And today I want to show you this in two ways. I want to show you first how he sets it up in terms of the beauty of this gospel. And then also help you to see the glory of this gospel. The beauty and then the glory of what Paul is talking about here. So first, let's look at the aspect of what it means for the gospel to be shown here in its beauty. Verse 16 begins this celebration of the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing. Again, he's celebrating this truth by showing us the amazing nature of what we're talking about here. So Paul isn't aiming just to be able to convince you intellectually that this gospel is true. No, he wants to hit you in the heart. He wants you to feel something here. It would be like for me saying something like this to you. Look, I'm telling you, this is incredible stuff. Paul wants to hit not just your head, he wants you to feel it. Not just to say, I believe this, but that you know I believe this. That there's something deep, something personal, something emotional about what's going on here. So he begins, great indeed, verse 16, we confess is the mystery of godliness. What is what is he saying here? Well, let's look at the words in reverse order. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Now you're probably familiar with this term godliness, but often you think about it correctly so in terms of your behavior, whether you do things that are right or things that are wrong. And while that's a true meaning of the word in one sense, that's not entirely what Paul has in mind here. 
When he refers to godliness, he's referring to righteous acts, righteous things that we do. And for that matter, godliness in that sense as righteous acts is really a summary of what true religion is or what true righteousness is. After all, wouldn't you agree that true Christianity is expressed in godly living? So when Paul is talking about godliness, he's actually talking about what it means to be godlike. And this is the essence of where the gospel leads us, isn't it? I mean, after all, Jesus forgives us to make us righteous so that we can be holy, so that we can be like God. Not infinite, not eternal like He is, not pre-existent like He is in all the sense of what God is, but that we might be holy. The remarkable thing about redemption in Christ is that Jesus cleans us up so that we can then be God-like, godly. The reality is, is that God makes us holy. He makes us godly. I mean, just listen to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. This is how John puts it. Just, just listen to these amazing words. Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Friends, that is unbelievable. Human beings... That when he appears, we shall be like him. That, that is the beauty of what heaven is all about. The, the marvel of the eternal state is not the accommodations. It's not that we all get to be there together. It's not that we're disease free at that time. It's not that there's no pain and suffering, but it is that we are in glory and we know that we are like him and we are like him because he made us like him. It's just remarkable. Great, indeed, Paul says, is the mystery of godliness. So the end game of the gospel is for you to be holy, to be righteous, to be godlike. So Paul's using this term godliness really as a bit of a synonym for what the gospel is, what righteousness is. Then he says, great is the mystery. Now this word we've seen before in chapter 3 and verse 9 in regards to deacons who are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear or pure conscience. When Paul says mystery, he doesn't mean something that is unknown completely. Instead, what he means is that this is something that previously was not fully disclosed. But in Christ, this mystery of what God is up to in terms of redemption has been made known. And so Paul still chooses to describe the overarching plan of God, although known in the scriptures as a mystery. And he does this for two reasons. One, because it was a complete mystery before, and yet at the other, on the other side of the equation, even though we know about the gospel, isn't it true that the more you understand about the gospel, the more you know about Jesus, the more you feel the fully um, embedded reality of what the gospel is, the more you realize that you don't know? I mean, I have been studying and preaching the gospel for years. I've been in classrooms looking at the gospel, and I find the more I know about it, the even more I need to know about it even yet still. C.S. Lewis described it this way, that it's like a forest, that the further you go in, the deeper the expanse and the wider the expanse becomes. See, this is the gospel. It is a great mystery. Great, he says, is the mystery of godliness. And then, notice third here, he uses the word great. So he describes this word, he says, great indeed, adding kind of an explanation mark on that. He is marveling at the extraordinary beauty and the supremacy of what he's talking about. And so he uses the word great. You know this word in the Greek, even though you may not know Greek, it's the Greek word mega. I mean, you know that word, right? Some of you will say that word this afternoon. Yes, mega size it, right? You know what mega means, right? It means great 
It means large. It, it, it means large at intensity. It means shortening your lifespan. It means all those things, right? That's what it means. Yeah. Supersize it. Take three days off my life. Just go for it, right? That's right. We want it, we want it mega. We want it great. But in the biblical context here, what Paul's referring to is not necessarily great in size. He's talking about great in scope, great in aura. Um, perhaps the English word awesome is better. So if, if I were to say to you, or, or if I were to ask you, how was your day? And you said, great. That might be one thing. But if I said, how was your day? And you said, awesome. That's, that's great at another level, isn't it? And so what Paul is talking about here is the idea of awesome, great, incredible. Great, indeed, he says, is the mystery of godliness. He's expressing the emotions of what the gospel really is. There's another piece that goes along with this, I think. So the word great in the city of Ephesus had a particular nuance to it, particularly to the Apostle Paul. After all, in Acts 19, we learn that Paul, while in the city of Ephesus, as he's preaching the gospel, he offends the worshipers of Artemis or Diana because they've got this great temple in the city and they have a whole economic base built upon the worship of this temple. There were all sorts of people who built little artifacts and models of the temple and they sold it to people. Well, the problem was Paul was so effective in preaching the gospel that people were like, we're following Jesus, we're not following Artemis. We're not following Diana anymore. And people who don't follow Artemis anymore don't buy artifacts from the Artemis temple. They don't buy the souvenirs anymore. So therefore, the economy in the, in the city of Ephesus was taking a tank, was, was going down. And so they were, they were ready to throw Paul out. There was a riot that took place. The people gathered in the city square, according to Acts 19, and here's what they chanted. And in your mind, see a scene from CNN in the Middle East with thousands of people in a square, and they're all chanting the same thing. You've seen this footage before, right? And here's what they're saying. They're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're chanting it over and over and over and over. And they did this for two hours. So Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians about the gospel, and he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. A part of me wonders if Paul is reminded about the riot that occurred in Acts 19 in the city of Ephesus. And this word great in that city has some history with the apostle Paul. So what is he doing here? Paul is savoring and celebrating the beauty of the gospel. This, this, this truth of what the gospel is, is this message that the church must guard and the church must exalt in it, not just intellectually and propositionally understanding it, but getting it in the heart that realizing that this truth that we're talking about, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is not just an academic issue. It's not just an intellectual issue. That there are deeply embedded emotional issues connected to the fact that we will be made like Him because of Him. And Paul grabs a hold of this truth and says, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. So that's the beauty of what Paul wants us to see. Now, We're going to turn next to look at the glory of what this gospel was meant to be. And we're going to see this in two ways. First, we're going to, actually three. First, we're going to look at the structure, just so you understand it. Then we're going to look at the dynamic of the glory of the gospel through the life of Christ. And then I want to show you how it turns in beautiful Timothy form to help us see that God intends for us to live out the life of Christ in the life of the church. So first we have this dynamic of what the church is supposed to be. 
chapter 1, chapter 2, how it's supposed to conduct itself in worship, chapter 3, who our leaders are, and now in chapter 4, or, or chapter, at the end of chapter 3, moving into chapter 4, we see the summary of what the church's mission in the world really is as it relates to the gospel. It's just beautiful. So, the first thing we need to look at here is this, this structure. And what I want to show you is the layout of this passage. Now, this is going to be a little bit academic. Can you handle that? You can handle that, right? So take you into Greek class and help you understand some things. Because the way that this word or this, this, this verse is laid out is really important. You wouldn't see it in your English Bible. And if you knew Greek or could read Greek, you might hear it a little bit. But you don't hear the rhyming. You don't hear the connection between word tenses. But maybe I can just show it to you here to see it. So this is the actual Greek text. And notice that every line of the particular verses of the stanzas begin with a verb. And they're also all in the same tense. See that theta, eta, theta, eta, theta, eta? That means it is an aorist passive. So it's the same tense. And notice that it continues all the way through. So what he's doing is he's setting up kind of in a poetic form the same sounding word with the same tense. So if you were to read it, for instance, it would be something like this. Ethane rothe and sarke, adiakothe and numite, hothe anglois. So you can hear the the, the, the. It's meant to be rhyming. Sort of like roses are red, violets are blue. And then you complete it. And you add the rhyming at the end. This, this thing that sets up this verse and then the rhyming piece that comes towards the back end. Notice also the, the, the E-N here. The E-N, E-N. This is connecting um, the verse from the verb to the particular dynamic that's happening here at the end. The, the noun form. He was uh, manifest in the flesh. He was... Um, vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. So all of this together means that um, these words, these phrases, are meant to communicate an entire message. It's, it's meant to be combined all together. And it's meant to be somewhat lyrical, somewhat um, rhyming in its sense, so that it really becomes this hymn or this creed that's memorable. So one commentator tried to put it together with English, carrying the meaning and then doing a little bit of the poetry to give you a sense of what this would have felt like a little bit in Timothy's day when this was read. So here's how he says it. In flesh unveiled to mortal's sight, kept righteous by the Spirit's might, while angels watched him from the sky, his heralds sped from shore to shore, and men believed the wide world o'er, he in glory passed on high. So you hear the rhyming? Hear the, the, the connection with the verbs and things of that sort? That's what really is happening in this text as Paul is walking the church at Ephesus through the summary of what the gospel really is. So that's the overall structure. Let me show you this now. Now, part of the challenge is to figure out how is this supposed to be laid out? And what's interesting, New American Standard, NIV, and ESV all lay it out differently, and there's a reason. They lay it out differently because part of the interpretive challenge is trying to figure out what is an independent and what's a subordinate clause. So the New American Standard here just simply, frankly, doesn't even deal with it at all. They just say all six of them are independent clauses. So they think there are six individual separate things that are being said. That just There are just six statements right in a row. That's what the New American Standard does with it. Now, the NIV, on the other hand, does this. It chooses that there are three independent phrases, and then there are three additional subordinate phrases connected to those three independent clauses. 
Now listen, this independent subordinate thing, teenagers, young people, listen to me, this is why you need to learn grammar. Okay? Listen to me, if you don't learn grammar, you won't know how to read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you'll go to hell. Okay? So, <laughs> so learn your grammar or you'll go to hell, right? So that's what, no, okay? All kidding aside, seriously, you have to understand how words work or you won't know what they mean. And if the Bible is written in a language, you have to know what the language means. So you may think English is boring, but English could actually save your soul, right? So just listen in class, all right? So here's the NIV. Here's the final one, and that's the ESV. And isn't this interesting? At least I hope you think it is. It is that the ESV says, no, there's two independent clauses or statements, and then there's two subordinate clauses related to the independent clauses. So... You might think, well, what's the point of this? Well, the point is this, that depending on how you view the sentence, the issue is, are there six points that Paul is making? Or are there three points with one support under each point? Or are there two points with two supports underneath each of those points? You might say, well, which is it? <clears throat> and the answer is, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, it could be any of them. But I think... Who gets the closest? I think ESV probably gets the closest. When you start to look at it and dial into it, it seems as though that there are three independent or two independent things supported by two additional statements so that there's a cluster. And central to this cluster message is the life of Jesus and the life of Jesus lived out through the church. So Paul is saying two things but he's saying them three different ways. Okay. So let's talk now about what the message is. What is, what is Paul driving at? What is, what is the point of all of this? What Paul is doing here is he is summarizing the work of Jesus Christ through his life and then summarizing the work of Jesus Christ through his life through the church. In other words, this gospel comes through Jesus and then in classic Paul form in the book of 1 Timothy, it is mediated through the life of the church. In other words, while Jesus lived his life and did his part, now he's given to the church a calling for the church to do her part. So Christ has done her work, but now the church has to do her part. In other words, you have to do your part. You're part of the church. You're part of what, of this calling that Paul gives to Timothy, to this church and to ours. So first, there's this notion of the glory of Christ's work through his life. So we have first here this overarching thing with the first um, gathering of these uh, phrases. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and these all relate to Christ's work through his life. The first one is this. He was manifest in the flesh. And this speaks to the humiliation of the Son or the fact that the pre-existent Son became human. So when crystallizing the central truths of the Gospel, Paul begins by saying he was manifest in the flesh. In other words, the Word, according to John 1.14, became flesh and dwelt among us. So Paul begins by summarizing the Gospel with this idea that Jesus became human. Jesus became human. It means that this good news, that Christ can save people, that this is only possible because Jesus came into the world. First Timothy 1.15 Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, we often focus on the save sinners part, and that's appropriate. But don't forget, without Jesus coming into the world, there would be no saving of sinners. The good news of the gospel is that God made forgiveness possible through the willful and double humiliation of His Son. 
The double humiliation is first, he becomes a human being. And secondly, as a human being, he endures the punishment of the cross. And in this double humiliation, he is manifest in the flesh so that it works that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners. It's remarkable. By becoming human, Jesus makes it possible for a once-for-all sacrifice to be made on behalf of human beings who, if they put their faith and trust in Him, are forgiven of their sins and God treats them as if they have fully atoned for their sins, even though God and these human beings know that they have not fully atoned for their sins. And that's why it's all of grace. It also means that God entered our world. He entered your world. I don't know what your week has looked like. Mine's been pretty busy. Um, I don't know what's going on in your world or it's in your background or what's happened in your life in the last year or so, but it means that since Jesus entered your world, He understands your pain. He knows about your temptations. He understands our challenges. That Jesus, as the Son of God, listen to this, is connected to the brokenness of this world. His humanity means that he really suffered. So you never need to wonder, does anybody understand? Jesus does. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this text, says this, the events of the passion of Jesus Christ were physical events. His cheek was kissed by his betrayer. His face was spit upon. His body struck and slapped. His back was flogged. His brow was pierced by thorns. His head was struck with a staff. As the scripture says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Don't take that statement for granted. This is the Son of God who suffers in the Flesh. Those two things should not be in the same realm as the Son of God. He certainly shouldn't suffer, and he certainly shouldn't be in the flesh. And so Paul says he was manifest in the flesh. He became human. Wow. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does this mean? It means that he was exalted. He was raised from the dead. Now, this word vindicated is a really important word. It means to make somebody morally right. And it is usually used in our context to refer to justification. The idea that God declares over you that you're righteous even though you're not. He declares that over you because of the finished work of Jesus. So to be vindicated or to be justified often in our minds means that somebody is sinful and God declares them to be righteous. Now that doesn't work for this Definition in terms of Jesus because he wasn't sinful. He wasn't declared to be righteous. What does it mean? Well, vindicated or justified can also mean something else beyond to be declared morally righteous. It can be, it can mean to declare that somebody is in fact right or they are who they say they are. For instance, if you have an argument with your spouse and you're like, no, it's this way and they're like, no, it's not. And then suddenly you are proven that you're right. In that respect, your comments are what? Justified. Or, let's say you have somebody in your life and you're like, you know what, I don't trust that person. I think they've got some questionable character. And then, sure enough, it it, it shows itself to be true. Ah, you were justified in what you had said previously. In other words, you are proven that what you said was indeed true and right. So how does that relate to Jesus? Well, here is this man who walks along the face of the earth and he says, I am the Son of God. It says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. So what is the event that vindicated Jesus? What is the event that proved that he really was who he said he was? Well, that clearly is the resurrection. 
An empty tomb declares that Jesus was right. So the resurrection demonstrates that his sacrifice was sufficient and that death, the penalty of sin, was conquered. You see, the the empty tomb means that Jesus not only died, but that God took his death and said, yes, it is indeed finished. The empty tomb means that the cross worked, that God was satisfied, and therefore he raised Jesus from the dead. The empty tomb declares that God's Son was who he claimed to be and that death was in fact defeated. But it says vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Jesus didn't raise himself. Rather, it was the Father who raised him through the agency of the Spirit. Listen to Romans 1.3. Concerning his Son, who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Or consider 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the idea and the glory of the gospel is not only that Jesus became human, but that he was raised from the dead. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Third, It says that he was seen by angels. This means glorification. In other words, he was honored and he was worshipped. This third phrase, seen by angels, is a hard one to understand. I think we've got it right here. When you think about how interconnected Jesus' life was with angels, it's really rather remarkable how often these angels show up. Think of his birth. They're there announcing the good news of his entrance into the world. Think in the wilderness when he's tempted, the angels show up and minister to him. Think Garden of um, Gethsemane when he's praying and is concerned about the coming cross. Angels come and minister to him. And think about him at the empty tomb where the angels come and announce his resurrection. So the angels are regular witnesses to his life. But it's 1 Peter 3, 21 to 22 that tells us even further about the exaltation of Christ and how it relates to angels. Listen to what Peter says. Through the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, to be seen by angels doesn't just mean that the angels saw him. It means that Christ, in this exalted and glorified state, now has the angels who are around him and worshiping him. And as a statement of honor and glory, Paul references seen by angels. So the effect of his resurrection is that Jesus is now glorified, he is now honored, and he is now worshiped. So the glory of what is happening here, the glory of the life of Jesus is, is that he was humiliated in becoming a human. He was exalted through the resurrection and he was glorified through the position of honor that he has been given. And friends, this is the heart of the Bible. This is the glory of the gospel. And frankly, this is the hope of the world right here we're talking about. 
This is the essence of what it means to be redeemed. This is the essence of what it means for the church to be the church. This is the way in which people are saved from their sins and brought to newness of life. It is that Jesus was humiliated. He was exalted. He was glorified. And Paul says, when you boil the gospel down, this is what it's all about. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. This is the glory of Christ through and lived out through his life. Now, he then turns to not just the glory of Christ lived out through his life, but now the glory of Christ lived out through the church. I mean, it's beautiful. The glory of Christ now lived out through the church. In other words, Jesus has done his part. Jesus done has, has done his work. And now the church is called to take this message of the beautiful reality of who Jesus is. And now we're to do something with this message. Paul says the church is a pillar and buttress of this truth. So this truth now the church must guard and protect. We must proclaim. Because after all, the message of what happened to Jesus is the message of what will happen to anybody who receives Jesus. So Jesus, in this way, becomes a first fruits of other things to come. This humiliation, humanity, exaltation through resurrection and glorification. By the way, that's what happens to every person who receives Christ. The beautiful thing is that what happened to him is going to happen to all those who know him. And there are two paths in life that we all must choose. A path that leads to destruction and judgment and eternal condemnation or a path that leads to a person understanding Christ as their Savior which leads to forgiveness and resurrection and glorification. This is the path of the redeemed and this is the path of the damned. And the church is called to boldly proclaim these two paths. So what does that sound like? Well, he says it was proclaimed among the nations. What's beautiful here is this message about who Jesus is has now been designed to be proclaimed in a global platform. Think of just what Jesus said at the end in Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. So the glory of this gospel message is not just the depth of it. I mean, not just the substance and the beauty of what it means for God to treat us in a way that we don't deserve, for grace to be amazing. But even more than that, the beauty of this message is not just its depth, but it's the breadth of it. It's the breadth of it. The extent to which God wants us to proclaim and give evidence of the glory of this message and to take it anywhere that anyone will listen and hear. God has expanded the reach of the gospel beyond the borders of any ethnic group. Before, God worked just with the Jews, right? He said to Abraham, in you, all nations of the world will be blessed. And so now his work is going beyond the Jews. Think what happens at Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out. People hear the message of the gospel in their own tongue. Then later, Paul specifically is called, and God puts this calling over Paul's life. He says, he will bear my name before the Gentiles. So what is the grand view of the Scriptures? The grand view of the Scriptures is this, that there will no longer be a church of just Jewish people, but instead, the gathering of God's people will be this. It will be a gathering of strangers and aliens who have become fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that this message of the gospel was meant to be a global message. That the vision of God is people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who declare, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Secondly, proclaimed among the nations. Secondly, believed on in the world. 
Paul says that this message is designed to be offered to all people. It's believed on in the world that salvation is therefore offered to all. Followers of Jesus are to call other people. We're to call other people to do what? To believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore they will be saved. So what is the mission of this church? You know why we exist? We exist to call people to believe in Jesus. It is the essence of why we are here. To call people to receive Christ. Listen to Romans 10, 9. It says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes. And then listen to this. For there is neither there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, this is the mission of the church. It is this, to call people, to call you. To call you today to believe in Jesus. To invite you, just very bluntly, to stop trusting in yourself, to stop trusting in what you've done, in your religious activity, your religious heritage. Our message is very simple. It's this, God is holy, you are not, and that's a huge problem. And the only solution to that is not for you to try and do more, but it is instead for you to realize the only hope in life is for you to fall on your face and say, God, I can't do this. I need you to rescue me through your son. And that alien righteousness given to you in faith is the only means by which a person is made right with God. He offers it to those who confess him and call him Lord and Savior. And the mission of the church, the mission of this church, is to call you to believe in the name of Jesus. That ends with this statement, taken up in glory. Don't, don't view this as like the postlude or the curtains closing, it's wrapping up. This, this is a triumphant explanation mark at the end, a bang at the end. Essentially what he's saying is this is the church victorious. In other words, that Jesus triumphed and he will return Taken up in glory. What's it referring to? You know what it's referring to? It's referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ. The moment when he's walking on the face of the earth after his resurrection, he's gathered with his disciples, and all of a sudden, while he's talking with them, Jesus begins to float. He's physically there. He's eaten with them after the resurrection. He has a real body. It's a glorified body. And as he's standing there with him, suddenly he begins to float, and he goes up into the sky, and the clouds envelop him, and he's gone. And the disciples are standing there. I mean, they're looking up at the sky. They just saw Jesus float up. And no doubt they're thinking, he's coming back, right? And their mouths are open. They're looking up. And an angel shows up. And you know what? Angels aren't always that nice to disciples. They're just really blunt. And I'm glad I wasn't a disciple because I probably would have talked back to an angel. And that didn't work well in the Bible. Like with John the Baptist's dad, that was bad. He had to be silent for a number of months. So I'm really grateful I wasn't there. Because here's what the angel said, and he kind of gets in their face a little bit. He says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? My answer would have been, because he just went up in the sky. That's why. I want to let you come back. Where'd he go? This was really fun. Where'd he go? And then the angel says this. This is beautiful. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
In other words, that ascension is not just a statement about Jesus' victory. Listen, it's a harbinger of what is to come. The ascension is not just a statement about Jesus' victory. It is a reminder that central to the mission of the church is the fact that we are awaiting a day for Jesus to come back. And when death or sickness or pain or trial or temptation come in our life, it is a reminder this world is broken and we need the king to come back and make everything new and bring us back to the garden of Eden where God will dwell with us and we will be his people. And in the meantime, the church is to proclaim he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. And every once in a while, a hymn writer gets it right, like in it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as the scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, and even so it is well with my soul. That is the heart of the mission of the church. This is the church victorious. So do you see how glorious this is intended to be? See the glory of the gospel lived out in the life of Jesus. See the glory of the gospel lived out in the life of the church. Jesus was humiliated. He was exalted. He was then glorified so that the message through the church could be proclaimed It could be believed, and in the end, that this message would be victorious. So Paul gives us six stanzas here that provide the heart of the heart of what we really believe. What they do here is they crystallize the purpose of Jesus' life. But you know what? They do something even more. What they do here is they remind us of the glory of the gospel through the church. It's not just Jesus' life, but it's Jesus' life lived through the church. It's Jesus' life lived through you. The mystery of the gospel is known to the world, and it's known through you. And so if you believe and love this gospel, then you ought to live out this gospel and make it work in the world while longing for him to come back. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Lord Jesus, we ask you to embed within our hearts the powerful crystallization of this truth. We, we know this gospel, but we ask you to help us to feel the gospel in a whole new way today. Help us to know how to live it out, how to declare it with boldness. Forgive us for the countless ways in which we let other things distract us from the essence of why we are here on this earth. If we believe and know and love these truths, then help us to live in them. To make much of you because you are worthy. And Father, for those who today sit under your judgment and don't know you, who if in this moment died would not know where they stand, I pray that today would be the day of conversion, a day when they say, Lord, I am done with my running my own life and I come to you and I need you to take over my soul. And I pray that in believing they might have life in your name. 
And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.